Hello, and welcome back to Dagish America Presents. I am your host, Ben Harl, and as always, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about the industry that I work in. Last episode, we talked with Bartek Dronowski about how phosphine works, as well as the wide variety of phosphine products available on the U.S. market. I've always found the history and scientific aspect of fumigation interesting, so I really enjoy being able to find out more about this molecule. So now we'll switch gears a little bit and we'll talk about some of the techniques we use in order to be successful with phosphine. Not all fumigations are the same. Each facility, commodity, and situation can require many different approaches to achieve the same success. Everything from temperatures, target pests, exposure periods, structure types, commodity types, and more can have a large effect on how well the fumigation occurs. I've invited Blake Buckner to join me on today's podcast episode to discuss some of the phosphine fumigation techniques used here in the United States. Blake is currently the business development manager at Degish America, and he has several years' experience in the fumigation industry. So, please help me welcome Blake to the podcast. Blake, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, Ben. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. I know we had you on for the last season, and uh, all of that went really well, and we wanted to bring you back for another season and another topic. So, thanks again for agreeing to do this. Sure. It's, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank okay. You. So you did last season, but just in case there's anybody out there who didn't listen to your episode last season, uh, just do me a favor and kind of give us a brief uh, explanation about yourself and how you relate to the industry. Of course, Ben. I've been with Dagish in, in various roles since uh, the early 2000s. And until assuming my most recent role here in uh, Weir's Cave, in business development, I spent most of my career with Dagish in the field conducting fumigations. And most of those were phosphine fumigations. And let me tell you, we did a lot, a lot of phosphine fumigations. And uh, I, I specialize in, in chip fumigations and, and tarpaulin fumigations and, and warehouse fumigations, but uh, I've been around many, many other applications in my time as well. Right. So it definitely sounds like we have the right person to talk about the different types of phosphine fumigations there are in the industry. Uh, sounds like you definitely have a lot of experience in that realm. So definitely glad that we have you on this particular episode to talk about this. I've been there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's just dive right in here. We all know that no single fumigation is the same and no single fumigant is the same and no two situations are the same. So with that being said, can you just kind of give us a brief example of some of the different types of phosphine fumigations that actually take place on a pretty regular basis in the United States? I'll do my best to, to put it in a, in a pretty little box. Um, I, I guess the first, <laughs> thing, I should, the first yeah. thing I should say is, you know, since phosphine, is, it's such a versatile molecule that this discussion on types of phosphine fumigations is by no means all-inclusive. But some of the most used fumigations are, are conducted probably on uh, containers, rail cars, and, and box cars. These are particularly popular for two reasons. The container or the rail vessel, they act as a, a ready-made structure or a chamber, if you will, for fumigation. It, it sort of affords the client the opportunity to not have to shut down their internal operations of their facility, but they can still conduct the fumigation. And the second benefit uh, in the case of rail or boxcars 
with the proper procedures, those vessels can be fumigated in transit, which greatly reduces the total time that the container and its contents are, are tied up in the process. Uh, another type of uh, fumigation that is, that is generally allowed to take place in transit would be ship fumigations, motor vessels. And this is a big boy, big box type of fumigation uh, where the fumigant is applied to commodities that are stowed in the holds of ocean-going motor vessels. Again, you know, we could have an entire podcast just on ship fumigation. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But, but I guess in a nutshell, when properly executed, uh, ship fumigation, clients are, are able to fumigate thousands, uh, often tens of thousands of metric tons of a commodity all in one shot while the cargo is en route to its destination. And then we have tape and seal fumigations, tarpaulin and whole, whole warehouse fumigations. Tarp fumigations are, are used when uh, we only need to fumigate a certain segment of a commodity and we're able to isolate the infested materials with plastic sheeting and fumigate them in lieu of fumigating the entire lot or, or the entire structure. Tarp fumigations also come in handy when a fumigation needs to take place on materials that are uh, within a structure that may not hold fumigant very well. It's not uncommon to tarp an entire structure full of a commodity and then fog the airspace to treat the areas outside the tarps. Tarps also can can take place outdoors uh, as long as the proper procedures are followed. And then, of course, we have the the creme de la creme, and and my favorite because of its effectiveness is the, the entire structure or the structural fumigation. Tape and seal the perimeters, uh, making sure the structure is gas tight as possible, and then fumigate away. This is the preferred method of fumigation in my book because, you know, we're able to control all the pests inside of the designated area without the risk of reinfestation from the materials that we didn't fumigate. Again, you know, all these fumigations come with their pros and cons, difficulties, limitations, laws. But I guess the long and short of it, Ben, is um, these are the most popular and, and the most brief way to explain them. I'm sure there there may be listeners out there that are saying to themselves, well, why didn't he talk about this type of fumigation or or, or what what about that aspect of the fumigation? And I'll just say that I'll you know I'll be happy to discuss this question with anyone at any point. Just just shoot me an email and and we can chat. You know, in reality, each of these fumigation types it could be argued warrant their own pos- podcast episode. And but but this is the short version of uh, of the story. Right, absolutely, and you're absolutely right about that. I mean, every one of these different types of fumigations have all of these little detail-oriented aspects to them that we could really drill down into and spend several hours discussing. (laughs) But what we wanted to do on this episode, and you're absolutely right, is just kind of give a general guideline or or a general uh, references to the different types of fumigations that are the most common that we see in the United States. So, yeah, um, if anybody does have any more questions about that, please reach out to us at Dagish America, and we'll be happy to help you out with that, uh, Blake included. (laughs) All right, so we talked about you know the fact that all of these different phosphine fumigations are a little bit different, and there's all these different parameters that take place with these phosphine fumigations. Can you give us kind of some of the examples of parameters that affect phosphine fumigations and some of the ways that we try to control those parameters in order to achieve a level of success? I'll just boil it down and start with the big three. I'm going to say CTT, concentration, temperature, and time. And I, I touched on this in the first season, uh, but these, like I said, are the, are the big three that contribute the most to a successful phosphine fumigation. Adequate concentrations that are verified through careful monitoring and administered at the appropriate temperature and do that for a sufficient amount of time. And those are the three big parameters. You know, they sort of have a close relationship with each other and, and one is not more important than the other. All three of them have to be pretty much spot on correct. 
if a fumigator is, is dosing for a particular temperature, you know, that will then dictate the time required at a designated concentration. So I guess in that respect, temperature is the driver of the bus and the starting point, but without the proper concentration and duration, uh, a fumigator will find it very difficult to achieve the desired result. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, as as you mentioned, Ben, there's a myriad of, of other parameters that come into play, you know, just within the weather conversation, you know, there's wind, humidity, pressure, but we can save that for our fumigation weather episode. um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. As we fumigators are all basically uncredentialed meteorologists. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I guess to wrap it up, you know, there are also some legal parameters that that will come in uh, federal and, and state and even local legal concerns and customers will have specific parameters. But as far as actual physical fumigation parameters, if you stick with CTT, you will almost always see positive results. Now, one thing I do want to ask too, uh, and just to make sure everybody understands that this is a consideration or could be considered a parameter of this, and that's the corrosive or potential corrosive nature of phosphine fumigants. Can you kind of touch on that just a little bit, just briefly? Sure. As as a rule of thumb, you know, phosphine materials are going to be corrosive to any precious metal. In particular, the, the metals and the components of electronic equipment, almost without fail, you don't want to fumigate anything that is electronic. So you're talking about, you know, computer systems, digital palletizing systems, you know, anything that, that has any electronics at all. You just want to make sure that you're very careful fumigating with phosphine around those types of equipment, correct? Absolutely. You either want to have it removed or, you know, take steps to isolate it from the fumigated space. Right. Okay. I just, that's very important for everybody to know, uh, especially when you're talking about entire facility fumigations. You know, there are ways to mitigate the chance of, of exposing some of this equipment to phosphine. You can remove it, as Blake was mentioning. You can also do some positive pressure uh, stuff with some fresh air from outside the facility. There's, there's a, a few different ways that you can combat the chance for uh, corrosion, but it's very important that you are aware that corrosion can potentially occur and that you need to take some kind of a measure in order to control or stem that possibility. So um, now I'll change gears on you a little bit. and <laughs> We'll talk about one particular method of fumigation that's extremely popular, both in grain storage as well as export ships, and that's using a method called recirculation. For anybody who has not done a recirculation fumigation, can you just kind of define it and give a, a brief explanation on what it is? Yeah, uh, recirculating does exactly what it sounds like. It, it facilitates the, uh, the air exchange within the grain mass. And the the J-System recirculation fan can be connected to the existing aeration system within the grain bin or a network of tubing can be installed. Most often used on motor vessel is the tubing that's installed before loading. And the way it begins is it draws air from the overhead or the headspace. And after the application of the fumigant, the recirculation system is activated and the the fan introduces the air drawn from the headspace into the grain mass from the bottom. And this is critically important because as as the fumigant continually reacts, the system brings the fumigated space to an equilibrium pretty quickly, and and then it maintains that balance throughout the fumigation period until the space is degassed. It's a highly versatile system. It, it can be installed internally, you know, within the confines of the grain bin or the or the ship hold, or it can be installed externally. It can be permanent, it can be temporary, and, and pretty much everything in between. It's really quite fascinating and, and, and should be used whenever possible. As you said, it, you know, it's been proven to be really effective and, and when fumigating dense materials. 
Right, yeah, and I could say, being a Midwest boy myself, I have done a lot, I mean a lot, of grain bin recirculation, and it is my preferred method of fumigation on grain bins, regardless of the fumigant you're using, whether it's phosphine or, or another fumigant. It works really well. I mean, the goal is to still seal the facility or seal the structure up, and then you're pulling air through the grain mass, so it's speeding up the the process of equilibrium or getting equal parts of fumigant throughout the entire structure uh, i mean this commodity sometimes this commodity is somewhat dense you know when you get into flowers or or wheat or some of this other dense commodity that's stored in these silos or stored in these ship holds and getting that phosphine to the center of that grain mass can sometimes by itself take a long time so that recirculation method actually pulls that phosphine down through that grain mass or, or that product much faster so you end up getting to that equilibrium a lot faster so to me it is vital when you're doing these kinds of fumigations to use that recirculation method no doubt and not only does it get it there faster but it it keeps it there too so you have that you have that little bit of peace of mind that you know it's always going to remain pretty steady yeah yeah and, you know, we're talking about export fumigations here a little bit and the recirculation method and all of that. So, And we've mentioned export fumigations quite a bit. And I know that export fumigations with phosphine happen every single day. I mean, we're talking, I mean, the number of phosphine fumigations that happen for export are on a daily basis from the United States to other countries. It's astounding how much is actually done. Can you give us some examples of some of the types of commodities that are fumigated with phosphine for export? And can you give some examples of some of the treatment schedules that sometimes have to be followed? Sure, I'm. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to boil <laughs> okay. it down. That's yeah. another. That's another big boy. Uh, a big boy subject. Oh, but, we could uh, spend a whole podcast season <laughs> talking about export fumigation. We could, whole, so. <laughs> we could probably have a whole show. <laughs> yeah, not just yeah. a season. So <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, export fumigations, you know, take place daily, as you said, on everything from cars to tobacco. But, uh, you know, I would say the most common phosphine fumigations are on, you know, various grains and tobacco. And with the state of the grain markets where we sit today, uh, you know, I I would venture to say that soybeans top the list of grains right now, but I can't be for certain. But what I am certain is that daily export fumigations on tobacco are being performed. Right. And that's sort of one of my wheelhouses. But as, as far as treatment schedules, I'll put it to you like this. I'm not an expert on all the treatment schedules. I'm pretty well versed on locating the appropriate treatment schedule, though. So as you and many of the listeners probably know, the USDA has a treatment manual that's, uh, I don't know, it's probably about 800 pages. <laughs> yeah, it's um, huge. <laughs> yeah. And about 200 of those pages are just on treatment schedules. So, I mean, there's 20 pages in there about fumigating lettuce. So um, (laughs) I guess I guess I guess what I'm saying is if you're going to perform export fumigations, you don't need to memorize the treatment schedules themselves. But you better make certain that you consult the treatment manual for the precise schedule that applies to the application that you're going to perform. And just to be sure, it never hurts to reach out to to the USDA or APHIS extension for confirmation. I mean, they're. They're already in the mix as, as they're the agents that will sign off on the phytosanitary certificate and on the goods that are going to be exported. So they're by and large the best resource for your guidance. So, you know, I guess without saying it, you don't need to be an expert in the actual treatment schedule, but you need to be an expert in finding it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to further clarify uh, what Blake is saying here, the treatment schedule, every country that receives fumigated products from the United States, they have 
very specific rules. Some of them have very specific rules on how that commodity or that product is to be fumigated before they'll even accept it into their country. They'll have very specific uh, application rates. Some of them, depending on the complexity of it, may have very specific treatment methods, uh, exposure periods, temperature uh, restrictions that are more restrictive than what the standard common label is. And that's what we're getting at. Some of these destination countries are going to have even more rules than just the normal you know, uh, uh, U.S. laws and local laws and state laws and then the, the label itself. They may have even more restrictions. And so that's where you have to go to that USDA treatment manual and figure out what those treatment schedules are for all of those varying countries. It's, it's vital that you do that if you're having something go to export because I can tell you right now, if you don't follow that, and that stuff gets shipped all the way over to the destination country and they see that it's not been done properly, they're not going to accept it. And now that product has come all the way back to the U.S. in some cases to get fumigated or they're going to reject it or it has to be fumigated there at a premium. And guess who's going to foot that bill? <laughs> probably <Yeah. laughs> probably the person that didn't fumigate it according to the, <laughs> according to the treatment schedule in the first place. So uh, I'm glad you I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that because, you know, it's. That's a, that, it goes even further than you just went further. And it, you really should, if you're doing export fumigation, not only consult the treatment manual and the import country, you really need to clarify with the receiving customer because often the receiving customer will even go a step further than the import-export regulations. Yes. And, and, and that you can get stymied by that as well. So that's a tidbit of advice that you know could be worth a million bucks, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so just make sure that you go the third step and make sure that you clarify with the customer. And most of the time, they're going to be pretty clear with you to begin with, but right. but not all, not always. So yeah, yeah. And I'm, hopefully I'm, we're not scaring anybody away from potentially doing no. export fumigations. Again, the USDA is there for a resource. The treatment schedule is there for a resource. This is just fumigation. It's just another aspect of fumigation. It's not. It, some of the paperwork is a little bit more complex. The rules are a little bit different. But once you learn them, once you get your feet under you and you really kind of figure out, like Blake said, how to find the information, it's just another fumigation like any other fumigation. So hopefully nobody's, we're not scaring anybody off of trying to do export fumigations. They're not uh. that complicated. There's just a little bit of extra footwork that you have to do or paperwork that you have to do in order to make sure that you're doing them properly. Yeah, there's nothing to be scared of. And, and like I said, the USDA and, and APHIS are, are a great resource. And, and by and large, they're more than willing to help out with, with any questions or, or, or concerns you have. About, right. about the fumigation. Right. We all have the same goal, and that's a successful and safe fumigation. So we're all partners. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned this earlier. Uh, you mentioned in-transit fumigation and the fact that phosphine can be used for in-transit fumigation, which makes it kind of stand apart from the rest of the fumigants that are on the U.S. market. So I was hoping you could give us a brief definition of what you mean when you say in-transit fumigation, and then just kind of give us some of the do's and don'ts uh, when it comes to in-transit fumigation? So in-transit fumigation is, as it says, you fumigate the materials and they actually go in transit, generally and hopefully only on the railroad or on the water. And this is actually, this is a pretty easy one after a series of pretty tough ones you've given me. So I'll give you two <laughs> do's. <laughs> I'll give you two do's and one very big don't. Okay. Do make sure that you follow the label and applicator's manual particularly the sections outlining in-transit fumigations, it's all outlined very clearly in the applicator's manual. 
and do make sure that you communicate and arrange the safer seat of the fumigated materials on the other side of the journey. That's a really critical one. There have to be trained individuals on the other side of the journey, whether it be over the rail or over the water. You know, and that's one of the, I hate to say it, but I, I think that's one of the most often overlooked aspects of an in-transit fumigation is making sure that the company or the person or the facility that is receiving that fumigated rail car or ship is aware that it's been fumigated and that they are trained in the receipt of that fumigated uh, material. Sure. It, there is an exception in that part of the, of the label, and it doesn't specifically say that there needs to be a licensed applicator on the other end, but there definitely needs to be someone that is trained in the receipt of it. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that too. Um, they have to be trained, but not necessarily licensed. Correct. Right. And now what's that great big don't? <laughs> oh, it's a big, it's a big don't too. Yeah. So don't ever, ever, ever fumigate anything. Not one pound of tobacco, a container, a trailer, nothing. Don't apply one gram of fumigant to anything that will be transported on a public road while under fumigation. Yes. Very simple, very cut and dry. Yeah, that's a very big don't. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of danger associated with that. You cannot do that. So, yeah, it, railways and waterways only. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's an important one. All right, I only have one uh, more question for you here, Blake. And I asked a similar question to you on the last uh, episode that you did with us on last season. And I'll ask it again, but this time I want to ask uh, about phosphine in particular. What advice would you give a new fumigator about the safe use of phosphine? Uh, along with the obvious, which goes with, you know, goes with any fumigant, read the label and applicator's manual and become very familiar with it, particularly worker and bystander safety sections. Take your time. Don't cut corners. You know, all this stuff, uh, like you said, uh, I covered in last season's episode on, on SF. So go back and give that a listen. But but as far as phosphine-specific advice, we'll go with smell is not an indicator of concentration. Ooh, that's a good one. I can't tell you how many times I've encountered situations where, you know, an applicator will mention, ah, well, it didn't smell like concentration X. You know, the, the, odor, the odor of <laughs> yeah. phosphine, it is an excellent indicator of, of the presence of the fumigant, but it is in no way, shape, or form, you know, a measure of concentration. Yeah. Always use your monitoring devices and verify what the actual concentration is and then use your appropriate PPE. And keep in mind that there's, you know, there's no antidote for phosphine overexposure. The only defense is wearing the proper PPE. And this isn't meant to scare anyone because if you wear the proper PPE, you know, phosphine is, is completely safe, 100% safe to apply and use. But don't ever take safety for granted. Wear your respiratory protection above 0.3 ppm to 15, a mask and canister, or if it's unknown or above 15, you wear your SCBA and you'll be fine. Anything other than that, and you're taking a huge risk. Yes, man. I'm so glad that you mentioned that about the odor uh, because phosphine does have a very definable odor. It smells like, you know, some people say it smells like garlic or a decaying fish. And I, th I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and they say, well, th that indicates a presence or an absence of phosphine. And it does, but it does not tell you what the concentration is. You can smell that smell at very low concentrations, and you can also not smell anything at all at really high concentrations because phosphine in particular has a tendency to very quickly deaden your sense of smell. 
Sure. Uh, so you can be in really high concentrations of phosphine and not smell it at all whatsoever. So you cannot, that's such great advice. You cannot rely on your sense of smell or your nose to tell you whether or not you're in potential danger without respiratory protection. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. So, you know, a couple, a couple other tidbits. And, and like I said, you know, since I covered the big topics in my last one, I want to get a little more specific. Handle the cleanup safely, you know, uh, unreacted or, or partially reacted phosphine can be extremely dangerous. So, you know, consult the applicator's manual for deactivation, but but in general, follow this rule of thumb. If, there, if there's even a 1% chance that the materials are still green or, or partially unreacted, keep it dry and don't confine it until you're in a position to properly deactivate it. Yes. You know, th- this isn't to say be really scared. No, it's just saying be very careful, you know. Don't pile it up in the back of a vehicle beside a cooler. You know, no tossing fumicells into a plastic bag to take to the deact drum. I mean, it goes on and on, but uh, the bottom line is, I've witnessed the power and the danger of not following proper deactivation procedures. It's not pretty. So, you know, I, I can't, I can't express it clearly enough. Keep it dry and give it space. It's, it's that simple. Yes, absolutely. And, and finally, always, always, always ask if you don't know. Um, many, many proud applicators have made huge mistakes, you know, simply because they were ashamed to ask questions or they just assumed that phosphine is no different than, you know, chemical X or fumigant X, you know, Phosphine is highly effective and, and, in my opinion, one of the most important pest control formulations in, in the history of the human race. And I don't think that's overblowing it. I don't either. Um, but, you know, for, for a new applicator, though, it's extremely complex. As I mentioned before, Ben, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours just about wind and its effects on structure fumigation. So so I don't expect that that you'll just get it and understand all the nuances of phosphine fumigations in six months. You know, like I said, I've, I've conducted thousands of fumigations and I still learn something nearly every fumigation that I apply phosphine. And Ben can also attest that, that I still ask questions. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, 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 you know, just to sum it up, lean on the experience of those around you and, and ask questions early and often. Well, that's great advice. Great advice. I really appreciate it. And listen, that's all I had for you, Blake. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to help us and answer some questions about fumigating with phosphine. Absolutely. It was my pleasure as well, Ben. And, and like I said before, if, if any of the listeners have any questions, just reach out to us. There's a, we've got a, a lot of experience on this side of the mic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. I want to thank Blake for giving us some examples of the many different ways that phosphine is being used in the U.S. and beyond. Despite phosphine being one of the oldest fumigants used, it still has a very solid place in our industry. On the next episode of Degish America Presents, we'll discuss some of phosphine's safety and regulatory requirements. Since it is a hazardous material, there are certainly some strict guidelines on its use, storage, and transportation. And remember, if you have a question you'd like for us to answer during our live season finale, please feel free to send it to us at podcast at degishamerica.com. Or, if you prefer, we'll always be happy to answer your question right away. You can also find us at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And so until next time, I'm Ben Harl, and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.